in order to get the best out of employees and in order to provide them, I think, the healthiest, most positive experience, it had to be about trust and really giving autonomy to the team to do their best work. And so I think those were kind of the two founding principles that I wanted to focus on is how can we humanize business, treat people like humans, make it safe to be a human, and how can we build an environment where they have trust and autonomy to do their best work? And it's, I'm sure I've made plenty of mistakes and I'm still trying to figure things, you know, those things out as as well as many other things. But if we can do those two things, it creates such a solid foundation to create a much healthier work environment, which also produces incredibly high value results. Welcome. I'm your host, Dino Cattaneo, and you're listening to Authentic Leadership for Everyday People, the podcast where we investigate the connection between effective leadership and authenticity. If you're looking for inspiration and tips on how to become a better leader by being your true self, you're in the right place. After a couple of episodes where we talked about comedy with my son, Nico, who is also the author of the podcast music theme, today we return to leadership in business and entrepreneurship. My guest is Jason Thompson, founder and CEO of 33 Sticks, an analytics consultancy. Jason is an expert in data and analytics, but what makes him unique is the fact that he built his business around the principles of humanity and empathy. We talked about the fact that he didn't feel comfortable in the Machiavellian world of corporate America. He believed there was a better way to run a business. When he started leading his team following some of the principles he has developed over the years, the team loved it, but it created a tension with the rest of the company. And that ultimately led him to quit and start his own business. In our conversation, he shared what his core principles are and how they apply to both building a team and choosing the type of clients that you want to work with. We also discussed the refinements he had to make along the way, where he took the principles too far, and some of the trade-offs he happily made to build the type of business he believes in. If you ever pondered the crossroads of career change, the blending of contrasting ideologies, and the pursuit of a more empathetic business world, this episode is for you. So let's start the way that I start every one of these conversations. Introduce yourself to my listeners, and you can take as little or as long as you want. Well, I am Jason. I'm the CEO of a small analytics consultancy called 33 Sticks. My background is in software engineering. It's actually my first job out of college, which I did for five or six years. And thankfully, I was fired, which turned out to be uh, amazing. And I fell into the analytics space working for a small startup at the time called Omniture, which has become you know, acquired by Adobe, I don't know, it's what, 2009 or so, it's been a while, and has become a a huge player in the enterprise analytics space. I did analytics for an online dating company for four years, built out their program, online dating data is amazing to explore. But most of my career has been spent in consulting. uh, And I've loved meeting a diverse group of people working on really challenging problems across all sorts of industries. But I also really hated consulting and how consulting was done. It felt dehumanizing. Uh, It was like I was on a road to burnout and ended up getting fired from my last consulting opportunity where I was a partner, quasi partner in the agency and was at a crossroads and decided, do I want to keep doing this consulting thing, which has 
been a blessing and a, and a curse or do I want to reinvent my career at about 38, 39 years old? And I decided I loved meeting people and solving really complex problems that consulting provided. So along with my business partner in 2013, we decided to start a company and really challenge the way services had been done. And that brings us to today. I'm sure I'm happy to dig into kind of any backstories or anything, but I don't want to bore your audience with a long rambling intro. There's a lot in what you said that is very interesting. So you talked about the fact that with your partner, you want to redefine the way that services are delivered. When in the course of your career, did you start forming an intentional view as to what you believed in terms of how you wanted to operate in serving the business world? Was there a particular moment where the like transitions and take us into sort of that process? I, I love that question. Looking back on it, I was 20, 21 years old. I was fresh out of college. I, I will say that I don't know how I ended up in this course in grad school, but I ended up taking a course on leadership strategy. And we read two books during the course and we debated which strategy would be best. The two books that we read were The Tao by Lao Tzu and The Prince by Machiavelli. And two more contrasting ideas for leadership I'm not sure you could find. And I found myself in the minority of people that were advocating for a Tao approach, a Taoist approach to leadership. It's the first time I had ever been introduced to kind of Eastern thought and religion. And I just felt like this was something that I was missing my entire life. Something really resonated for me. But I also understood that I was going out into a world that was primarily informed by a more Machiavellian approach. And I knew I had a, a bit of an uphill battle to, to climb. And I kind of put that all away and said, I'm just going to go out into the workforce and kind of do the thing. But I was miserable. Day one, I had great experiences, don't get me wrong, but I was miserable in the corporate world. And one of my coping strategies was I got a physical notebook and I started writing down everything I disliked about leadership and how it was done with the idea that if one day I'm ever given a leadership opportunity or one day I ever take that leadership opportunity for myself, I have a notebook full of things that I want to try. I didn't know if they would work. But I knew what the opposite of those things were wasn't working for me. So I wanted to test these ideas out. And that's how it kind of started forming my philosophy is I didn't like these things. I didn't know if the opposite would work, but I really wanted to test the ideas out to see if they would. So as you were moving up, still even within the corporate world, did you have opportunity to test some of these things? And is there an example that you would be willing to share with us? Absolutely. Yeah. So I got bits and pieces of it as I started uh, in the middle part of my career to start to take on more middle management, I guess, type of roles and start to poke around and test a few of these ideas. But where I really saw the light was my last job, which was 2011-ish to 2013, early part of 2013. I had an opportunity, a guy I had worked with at, at Omniture, bumped into him in Monterey, California, and kind of talking about plans said, hey, I really want to start my own business. He's like, no, nah, no, nah, you don't want to do that. It's risky. It's risky. I'm building out my own agency. We're highly, you know, technical, doing highly technical work. We need someone to come in and build out more analysis, more optimization, more kind of data strategy for, for clients. Can you do that? And if you will, I'll let you kind of test out all these ideas you have. And so, you know, I'll take all the risk. You come test out your management and leadership ideas and we'll see if it works. 
And so I'm like, wow, that's an awesome idea. So I did it. I took him up on the offer. I started to build out a team. I built out a team of about 16 people on my team. We invented a whole new line of business, really helped increase company revenues and profits. And I started testing out these ideas from my notebook. And you know what? It, it was working. It was working in isolation because the rest of the company, they were not under that type of leadership. And it started to create a real division within the company. The management team was not liking my direction because it was misaligned with theirs. And the rest of the organization that wasn't under my leadership wanted what my team was getting. And it created this real kind of divide and internal fighting. And it was ugly. And it ended up with with me and my future business partner both being let go on the same day, saying, you're out of a job, you got no benefits anymore, you know, see ya. And we're like, whoa, okay, let's figure this out. But that that two-year run, I had seen the spark. I'm like, some of these ideas I think really can work. For somebody who is right here and listening and thinking about it, it's not working out too well for them in the Machiavellian world. What are some of the principles and ideas that you had in the notebook that you applied? And what are like the first two or three? Number one is it had to be about people. Whether we're talking about our customers, our employees, our partners, we had to be a people-first organization. And we had to see people as humans and really humanize the work because my experience had been quite the opposite. And I've, I had some great leadership throughout my years and little spots where it felt good. But by and large, I was just a number. I was an asset. Uh, I was a resource to be used and, and was not seen as a human was not cared about as a human. It didn't feel safe to have human feelings of fear and doubt. And and it just felt bad. And I wanted to create an environment. In fact, I've called it an oasis. I wanted to create an oasis where people could rest and recharge from kind of this inhumane experience that they get. Sorry, I've got my uh, little attack dog. Inhumane experience of, of the corporate world. So number one, it had to be about people. Number two, it had to be about trust. In order to get the best out of employees and in order to provide them, I think, the healthiest, most positive experience, it had to be about trust and and really giving autonomy to the team to do their best work. And so I think those were kind of the two founding principles that I wanted to focus on is how can we humanize business, treat people like humans, make it safe to be a human, and how can we build an environment where they have trust and autonomy to do their best work? And it's, I'm sure I've made plenty of mistakes and I'm still trying to figure things, you know, those things out as, as well as many other things. But if we can, if we can do those two things, it creates such a solid foundation to create a much healthier work environment, which also produces incredibly high value results. What are some of like the tactical moves in terms of operationalizing trust and treating people as humans? So number one is I've spent a lot of time, I don't want to use kind of the cult narrative, but a lot of the work that I've done tactically is deprogramming people because I've attracted some really amazing employees and they get it and they they have a thirst for wanting to work in a, in a healthier environment, yet they've been so conditioned by 
a different way of doing work that it's taken a long time to help kind of break down that defense mechanism that they have up to say, this isn't safe. You know, I can't, you know, let my guard down. I can't be a human. But unless we're able to break that down, it's really difficult to run the type of business that that we want to run. And so a lot of my time, especially with new hires, is spent breaking down some of those those barriers and walls and kind of reconditioning them that this isn't a trick. You know, this is safe and we can be human. One of the stories that I love to tell, and he's okay with me telling it at this point, our longest tenured employee who's been with us nearly eight years, the first year, anytime he would leave the office, because so we're fully a fully remote company, I guess I didn't mention that. Anytime that he would leave the, the office, he would call me and ask for permission. And one day, it was maybe four o'clock on the East Coast. He calls me up. He's like, hey, there's this Lego exhibit in town. Want to knock off early? Go check it out with my son. I'm like, why are we even having this conversation? But it's been so programmed into us that, you know, we're not trusted and we have to explain ourselves. And I'm like, I don't, I don't care. I want you to go do these things. I trust that you're making smart decisions. And if, if I was having any problem with your output or performance, we'd have a discussion, but please stop asking me, (laughs) you know, I, Share pictures with me because I love to see, you know, our team taking advantage of that autonomy, but don't come to and ask me for permission because this is the opposite of, of what I'm trying to create. That's great. And so a really important part of that safe space, especially in a service business is, you know, you may be operating in an environment where people are human first, and then you start with a point of trust your clients may not. And while there's an important part in the client business, which is to make sure that you're not taking on clients that are a good cultural fit, no matter how profitable they are, there's a lot of gray area. There is. What are some of the mechanisms that you put into place to ensure that your team can operate according to your values and then still? Number one, I I put immense trust in in the team. And we've kind of set some guardrails for where we want to operate and what we want to do. But ultimately, I've put the trust in the team to do what they feel comfortable with as far as how we engage and, and have a more humanistic conversation with, with our clients. With that said, I, I think it is critically important that we attract the right type of customer for us. And has that had an impact on our revenue? Probably. I'm sure we could be making a lot more uh, money as a company if we wanted to. But I think we're giving up a lot of wealth by doing so. Wealth in terms of our autonomy, our freedom, our happiness of working with the type of clients that we want to work with. And so that's really my role from a, a sales perspective is identifying and hiring the right type of companies. And we can look at things at a company level, but we work with people. And, and people, you know, kind of have their own ideals and attitudes towards work and people change. We sell engagements, people come and people go. And there have been times where unfortunately I've had to fire clients simply because they no longer align to what we were trying to do. And the money was great. The projects we were working on is great, but the people we were working with wanted to treat my team in a Machiavellian way. And I don't want to do that. That's, that's the opposite of the type of company. I want to create and I've let those those companies go and that has earned a tremendous amount of trust with the team that I am going to make decisions that may be in the short term financially hurtful 
but in the long term is going to put us all in a better place. That has done more, I think, to kind of break down these barriers that this is just another company that's in it for themselves, that's trying to utilize employees to maximize return for the shareholders. The minute I start making some of those decisions where it's clear in the short term, I'm, I'm willing to forego some profit for their well-being has had massive positive impacts on what we're trying to build. And as you think about sort of the other side, I'm sure that there's been some trial and error as you were developing and implementing this philosophy. What are some places that people should be looking at and be careful on in terms of, you know, when you're setting up a a company where everything starts in trust and everything is based on human relationship, there's, there may be risks if you're not setting the right boundaries on that. So what are the boundaries that people need to think about to successfully operate? It comes from intentionality of defining what those boundaries are. And I think it's mistakes that I made very early on is I was operating under the assumption that everybody got what I was trying to do and we would all be in alignment. And unfortunately, that that wasn't the, the case. And I take that on me of not being intentional and in, in clearly articulating what it is we do, what we don't do, and what, what the boundaries are. And so if I had the opportunity to go back and do it again, I don't know that I would. I think it was amazing lessons to learn. But, you know, had I had that knowledge beforehand, I'm sure it would have saved a lot of sleepless nights and a lot of pain of making some mistakes where, Maybe I felt taken advantage of. Maybe we had some bad interactions or relationships because we were operating from two different sets of beliefs or dynamics. And so now I'm really, really focused where I was scared before maybe. And we talked about it, I think, before we started recording, kind of just saying what I want to say, saying what I believe. I got to the point where that was critically important because I didn't want to hide who I was as a as a leader and I didn't want to hide who we were as a company because what was happening is we were attracting potentially employees and customers that were misaligned and when then when we pulled back the curtain it created some really negative and poor experiences and so I I am just trying to be incredibly blunt on here's who we are here's who we're not here's what we'll do here's what we won't do in fact I put it right on our website and say, like, if this aligns with you, I think we can work great together. If if this kind of turns you off and upsets you, I'm, we probably won't work well together. And that is okay. And in fact, I'm incredibly transparent with both potential employees and potential customers that I am not here to hire everybody. And I am not here to win every business. I just want to hire the people that align with what we're trying to create together as a team. And I just want to win 100% of the business from companies that align with the way that that we do business. Has there been any meaningful change in the way that you think about leadership? You're now with with more experience and places where you have re-aligned things, maybe fine-tuned. What are some of like the key lessons from the putting in practice, the things in the notebook, if you will? Yeah, I think one of the biggest lessons that that I learned is that it's okay to have incredibly high standards. It's okay to be firm and tough with employees to to be firm and tough with with clients or customers. I think early on, I wanted to have this very soft and welcoming and everything is great and beautiful and nothing is ever bad kind of approach. And that was really misguided. And while I felt like, you know, I was protecting the team and everything is great, it really took away from their opportunity to learn and grow. And I was really doing them a disservice. And so what I needed to figure out was 
how can I allow the team to kind of see the the bad that happens, to see the struggles of a business, to understand that we have to have money to continue to do the things that we do. So we can't just go and, and think we can do all the things we want and not have to worry about profitability and and figuring out a way to expose that to them so they could grow from that, I think really was something that they needed. And again, I was unfairly taking away from them, but I wanted to do in such a way that, it, again, that it was in a humanistic way that I was not viewing them as just a resource, a line item on, you know, the profit and loss statement. And that took a little bit of time to figure out. And I'm still trying to figure it out a bit. But I think that that's the biggest thing that I've had to pivot from a leadership perspective is I can't create an environment where I alone and with a business partner or others in a leadership position take on all of the stress and anxiety and all of the negativity maybe that comes with running a business and hide that from the team because it truly robs them of some really amazing learning and growth opportunities. In terms of the balance between providing the right level of transparencies on financial operations and then yet keeping the information that is appropriate just for you or for the executive team to manage. How did you navigate that and and where did you land? It's a great question. I would say I navigated it poorly to start and I've kind of refined it over time. I went into it thinking that I could just talk about the math and everybody would get it because these are super smart people that have lots, decades of work experience, that work in data and you know calculations all day long, but it didn't work. You know, it didn't work to just talk about the math of here's what you bring in, here's what I'm spending, here's what I can give back out. For some reason, it just it just didn't resonate. It just didn't hit. Um, and so I had to go back and adjust and and understand that all of the all of the kind of line items weren't important to to them, and a lot they didn't get. Um, you know, I. I, I think back to my own career, probably a lot of the criticism I had for leadership was really misguided because I was clueless to what they were going through to try to run a healthy team in a profitable way. And it wasn't until I was in a position to have to manage that where I was like, ah, it clicked. Um, yeah, I couldn't take that a learning and apply it to my team because I was going back to the same model saying they will get it, they will understand. And they it's just something that's really difficult to understand. And so I've tried to keep the team informed and be incredibly transparent around just our general state of financial health and where, where we are at, that they are have a direct line and impact to our revenue, especially as a small services organization. Their work is what helps us to continue to grow. And they see that, but getting into the nitty gritty and trying to read a PL with them was not necessary. In fact, it was doing way more harm than, than good. And I had to kind of adjust that and figure out what the right balance is. And so I don't know if I have a right balance now, but it's closer than what I had before, where again, we're incredibly blunt and transparent with, um, with where we are financially. And just to kind of give you more clear wording on that, the last three years for us have been incredibly challenging. We have been flat as a company growth rate since the start of COVID. And I've been incredibly transparent with the team on that. I said, you know, whether it's number of accounts that we're working with or actual top line revenue, we have not changed in in three years. And it has been incredibly difficult. But I also think that we've carved a path where we're trying to do things in a smart way. And while a lot of our competitors were growing exponentially during COVID, I don't know why, but they were. 
massive hiring, massive customer growth. And I heard from some of our employees like, well, what are we doing wrong? And they're doing so right. And I said, I don't know that we're doing anything wrong. We've just chosen a more measured approach to our growth and we're taking less risk. And today I'm having conversations with the team. We're flat again this year, but you know what? Our three closest competitors have all shrunk between 20 and 50% of their workforce. So, you know, which one of those do we want to have? And those are the type of discussions that I'm, I'm having with, with the team. Along these lines, how do you measure success and how has that definition of success for you personally changed over the course of your career? It just changed a lot. I think when I first came out of college, my my definition of success was having a house on the beach and having millions of dollars in the bank and having the corner office and having fancy titles and you know being in these inner circles of of titans of industry. That that was my view of what success is. But as I worked from went from corporate job to corporate job, that started to deteriorate because I got to see a little inside view of the real life behind some of those people and saw that it wasn't everything that we had been led to believe that it was. And I didn't know that I wanted to go down that. Well, I knew I didn't want to go down that same path. You know, it looked really pretty from the outside, but when you get to look behind the curtain, you see, it's not exactly what, you know, you've been led to, to believe. And so my, my measure of success really shifted from those kind of tangible external views of what success is to ones more around personal growth and happiness for me personally, and then extending that to the team. So am I doing things where I'm growing and becoming smarter and getting more talented? Am I happy doing what I do when Sunday night rolls around? Am I like, do I have a pain in my stomach because I don't want to go to work on Monday? That's kind of how I think about success. Am I excited to do what I do? Am I happy? Am I growing? Am I learning? That to me is way more valuable than the house on the beach or the fancy corner office. And I want that for, for my team as well. So we, we focus a lot of our time, which is hard in a services company, on personal growth, especially if you're an hourly billing company, which we're not. It's really hard to say, you know what? Don't work on client work right now. Work on personal growth because that directly attacks profitability. But for us, because it is the such a huge measure of success, we spend a lot of our time getting our team smarter. And whether that benefits us or not, I don't know. I Well, I do know. It does benefit us. But the focus is on we want to make our team smarter wherever they are in, in their career, in their life, whether it's working at 33 Sticks or it's somewhere else. To me, I get an immense amount of pleasure and a feeling of success from that as as well. How does that translate in the goals that you're setting for the company? I'm a horrible goal setter. <laughs> so number one, I don't know because I've never set goals for, for the company. We've set kind of direction. So we, we don't have any kind of goals that we set of we need to add X number of clients or we need the profitability to increase or revenue to increase by a certain, we don't, I've never set any of those type of goals. So I think it's, it's really hard to measure in, in that perspective. I think about it in terms of are we providing and creating really positive, amazing experiences for our customers. So am I hearing more and more from our customers that we want more experiences like this? Or am I hearing from our customers of this was a horrible experience? So those that to me is kind of a measure of our success. Am I hearing from our employees of things like 
this is the longest I've ever stayed at a job because it's finally a place that feels like home. That to me is a measure of success. And so while kind of in my mind, I have directionally ideas of success of where we're going and measuring that, I've really shied away from actually setting measurable goals from a company standpoint to say, if we hit this number, then then we're successful. I want to go back for the notebook. Is there anything in there that after your time putting this principle in there, I'm like, yeah, you know, this should not have been in there? I don't know. I'm sure there is. Nothing really comes to mind. I think maybe some of the things that have informed my early leadership of kind of completely flat, non-hierarchical organizations was probably a, a little bit misguided. You know, I wanted to operate as a collective and everybody could just make decisions and do things how they felt felt should go. But that really didn't work out for me. Maybe that works out for others, but that didn't work out for me in that I think it's okay to say there are certain things that as an executive are my responsibility and I'm not expecting the team to have to make decisions on them or are they informed enough to make decisions on them? And that isn't just to talk poorly about the team. It's just we have taken on different roles. We have different experiences and and different ways of viewing things. And so it probably took me three or four years to fully accept that I owned the company. I think the first three or four years of operations I was an employee. And I think that ultimately led to more negative experiences and harm to the company and the growth of our employees than me accepting the role that it's okay for me to be a leader. And I think I kind of shunned that title because I didn't want to be this top-down Machiavellian order people around. And so I went so far to the other side of, we don't need leaders. We're just going to figure things out. But we did. We do need leaders. And I finally had to get to the point of saying, it's okay for me to accept the role of being a leader and I can do it in a in a healthy way. And I don't know if there was anything specific in the notebook that said that, but I'm sure there were nuggets in there that kind of informed that rejecting of the notion of having a leader. So it almost feels like the definition of what a leader is shifted for you. Absolutely. Yeah. And so if you were to say, okay, as a leader, this is my role right now, what would you say? My role is to create a really healthy environment, to set guardrails of what we will do and won't do, to set expectations as far as the level of quality we will produce and not go below, to set expectations around the type of experiences we will create for our customers, and then step back and allow the team to to operate within that environment not micromanage, not do the work for them, allow them to do it so they can learn and grow and then find opportunities both in the work to slightly correct where we're making mistakes. And if we make large mistakes for me to take the external blame and arrows and then in private correct where employees have have made those mistakes so that they can learn and grow. Really, that's that's my job is to create that environment and allow the team to operate to the best of, of their ability. So it's probably cliche, but it is the set the initiative, set the direction and then get out of the way and let the team operate because we've hired really smart people. We have to allow them the space to to do what they're great at doing. That's a beautiful place to stop. So if people want to find out more about you and the company, where should they go? So the company, you can go to 33sticks.com, the number 33sticks.com, and you can learn about our company. Again, I've been 
pretty blunt on there and who we are, who we're not. And so if you want to learn a bit more about how we operate and the type of services we offer for our clients, you can read there. As far as me personally, probably LinkedIn. Again, we talked about it at the start before we started recording. I'm incredibly blunt and transparent in my views and beliefs and sometimes a bit off the rails, but I'm going to make the mistake of just being completely who I am and own that. So if you want to know more about me and my thoughts and want to engage with me, I'm very open. I'm very receptive. Find me on LinkedIn. Let's connect and and chat. I will add to that that it is your LinkedIn posts that have really stimulated my curiosity and led me to stalk you for probably two or three (laughs) months to get you here because I thought you would have some really good thoughts for my listeners. And I was actually right. So... I'm going to quickly go into what I call the personal part of the podcast. So first question, do you have a hobby or an interest outside of your work? And how is that informed maybe the way that you work? I have way too many hobbies. I think that's a problem. It's only a problem financially. It's not a problem for how I work because I think the amazing thing that I've learned is that the more diverse my hobbies the more valuable of a leader I become. It's it's amazing how many times either doing a hobby, I solve a work problem or working on a hobby, I get a new idea for something to, to try at work. And so I see them as really part of the same. I can't split myself apart as personal, professional. These things all work together. So as you mentioned on my espresso machine in the background, one of my hobbies is coffee. I've imported and roasted my own beans. I have a couple different ones that I'm working on. So I have my own bean and I'm not, I'm not roasting. I have selected a couple roasters that are doing small batch runs for me, but I love experimenting with coffee because for a data nerd, espresso is such an amazing thing to experiment with and talk about notebooks. I have a notebook and I've saved all the bags of beans I have with a label on it that I can go back and talk about the pressure setting, the grind size, the extraction time, all these different variables that I love playing around with. So coffee is a huge hobby. And then musically, I play the piano, the ukulele, the bass, and I recently uh, have started teaching myself guitar the last year. And so I play a lot of music. It is a great escape for me. And I think there's something cognitively where playing music connects a lot of the misaligned things about work that need to be connected. So it's a huge bonus for me. And then I think my most passionate hobby is is in the kitchen. I love cooking. I dedicate one meal a day, which is dinner, to doing a full dinner. So I plan out the week. I transform the kitchen into a mini restaurant. The kitchen is my Zen time. It's where I'm the most relaxed and calm. And I absolutely love every opportunity I can have to be in the kitchen. This is my favorite question coming up. Every era has business jargon and expressions that are so overused that they lose meaning. Which is the one that drives you crazy? Oh, geez. I don't even know if I can pick out a single term because they all drive me crazy, especially in in the services. Well, maybe not especially. I'm sure it's in, in every industry. I see so many of our competitors and the thought leaders on LinkedIn kind of recycling this same message over and over again with buzzwords and jargon. I'm like, 
but what does it actually mean? What's behind the curtain? You know, and, and kind of speaking of the kitchen, I get the importance of plating. I get the importance of having, you know, an, a nice dining room that completes the experience. But if you're not putting a world-class meal on the plate, all of that stuff is completely meaningless. So I don't know if I can pick out a, a certain buzzword. I am just not a fan, probably to a fault of just keeping at arm's length away, whatever the trendy topic of the day is, because it is just not for me. And I, I don't know if this even makes sense with this story, but it comes out in my choice of movies. <laughs> and again, this will talk about kind of these extremes I go to where I'm probably going too far to an extreme, but I'm so turned off by whatever the latest buzz is that I completely avoid it to the point that I haven't seen most major movies that I'm sure most people have seen. The one I like to point to is Titanic. I've never seen it. It's probably an amazing film, but there was so much buzz about it that I didn't want to see it. And so if you look through my catalog, and I've been a Netflix subscriber since the 90s, back when it was DVDs, sure for the convenience, but but more importantly, because I could get the most bizarre, unheard of documentaries and weird genres like Dogma 95 that 99% of the world has never seen. And to me, that was, that was home. And that's how I feel about business. Like the jargon, the buzz. And, you know, right now it's, it's, it's AI and it's generative AI and it's all this stuff. And yes, there's a lot of amazing things happening to that, but I just don't want to attach to the buzzwords because it just feels so shallow and meaningless. I would rather, and if you follow chess, the bad boy of chess, Hans Niemann, I says the chess speaks for itself. I would rather have the work for it speak for itself and not have to worry, worry about attaching trendy buzzwords to what I do. Great. So final question. I call it food for the body or food for the soul. And some people choose to go both ways, but food for the body is a, a recipe or a drink or a meal that right now it's really, you find nourishing. And then if you go the soul route is more into the art realm. So it can be a book, a movie, a piece of music, sculpture, play. You are putting me on the spot as someone that has so many things in the kitchen that I love to to create. So food for the soul or things that I'm into right now, or no, let's start with food for the body. Something that I love right now is all sorts of Southeast Asian soups, primarily Thai kind of soups. It's so comforting, especially here. So I'm in Utah and it's getting cold. And so, you know, warm and comforting. And if you have the sniffles, it feels like kind of the Asian version of grandma's chicken noodle soup. I'm really big into it. I am not good at cooking Asian inspired dishes, but I love just as like running my business, I like exploring and testing new ideas. And even if it isn't amazing, it's amazing to me to be able to prepare. And so I'm I'm really big into Asian style soups right now. But man, I, I am a lover of all culinary. And I, I guess if it comes to comfort, I learned to cook in my my Italian grandma's kitchen. And so pastas and dipping bread in oil and and cured fish. Those things to me are our comfort. And so if if I need comfort, that's where I run to. That's fabulous. Thank you for being on this interview. It was great, very inspiring, exactly what I was hoping for. You're very welcome. And I'm I'm honored that you invited me. And yeah, I hope I hope your listeners are able to take something valuable away from this.
Thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, find a friend who may enjoy it and tell them that they should listen to it. If you really like the show, tell all your friends and post about it on social media. Every little bit helps. Also, make sure you're subscribed to the show on your favorite listening platform so you don't miss any episode. And if you listen on a platform that allows rating and reviews like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Audible, Good Pods, please leave us a stellar rating and a review. Five stars. Stay tuned because after the credits, I will play a song by Susan Cattaneo, one of Boston's best Americana singer-songwriters. For more information on the episode and all the links, go to the website, al4ep.com, spelled with the number four. You can email me at dino at al4ep.com. Please make sure you follow the podcast on whatever social platform you're on. On Twitter and Instagram, the handle is at al4edp with the letter D. And on Facebook, look for Authentic Leadership for Everyday People. This episode was produced by me, Dino Cattaneo, with additional edits by Pro Podcast Solutions. It was recorded remotely with Squadcast. The theme music was composed, produced and arranged by Nicolas Cattaneo, who also played keyboards and drums with Tony Savarino on guitar and Jesse Williams on bass. And now, here is Work Hard, Love Harder by Susan Cattaneo and the Boscar Lilis. The heart beats louder than the dollar Shines light in a world gone darker Draws joy in permanent marker Work hard, but love harder Father Time's got a job to do Punches in his time card, then he's coming for you. You pray to Saint Joe for that nine to five. You should be praying to Saint Valentine. Second time around, 20, 30, 40 years fly through. Suddenly you're wondering where'd your dreams get to. Daughters, work hard, love harder.
smarter. Take 